Good morning. It's good to see y'all this morning. Um, I have not stepped on a scale since Thursday, just want you to know. Uh, it was a good Thanksgiving for us, even though we couldn't get together with all of our family this year. We were able to see a few people, and this year, Carrie made the turkey. That's the first time that's happened in a long time, so I actually had Thanksgiving leftovers. I know people complain about leftover turkey. I never used to have hardly any, enough for a snack, but since Carrie made it this year, we had all the turkey we wanted, and you know, what they say is true. It tastes better the second day and the third day. So uh, we really enjoyed that. And it's good to see y'all this morning. We are closing up this series on the life of Paul. I've enjoyed this. I hope you have. You know, we started this year with basically two goals. We wanted you to see that the entire Bible is really one long story with a theme. The theme is God brings peace to the chaos in this world. And you see it in Genesis chapter 1. God starts, the very first verse of Genesis says, the earth was formless and void. In other words, it was chaotic. It was uninhabitable. It was was a place of chaos. When God created it, He made it that way and then spent six days making it inhabitable. And not just inhabitable, but a place where people would thrive, would walk side by side with their God and have everything they could possibly need or want. And then in chapter 3, we, we ruined it through our sin. We broke this world, and God has been redeeming this world ever since, little by little, one soul, one family, one heart at a time. And so we see in, through all the stories of Scripture that, that theme of God bringing peace to chaos. We see an elderly couple, childless, and yet through this incredible miracle, it, it breaks all the rules of biology. They have a baby, and that baby becomes the, the founder of a new race of people, a race that God would use to bring salvation to this planet. And we see that same race hundreds of years later in slavery in Egypt. And through a, a series of miracles, they, they gain their freedom and become a new nation, a nation that will be a kingdom of priests to represent God before the people of this world. We see a, a young man ripped from his home by a military invasion, taken away to a distant land, never to see his family or his home again. And yet instead of being a victim, he becomes the ultimate power broker within this pagan government, an insider whose, whose goal is to serve God, not himself, and brings emperors to their knees and brings some of them to faith in God. We see a young woman, a member of a cursed race, the Moabites, the Israelites wouldn't even let them into the temple of God. And yet this young widow, in in the course of trying to provide for her mom, her mother-in-law and herself, God provides her with a family. But not just that, he makes her part of his plan of redemption. She's in the line of the Messiah. And then in these last several weeks, looking at Paul, a guy who was born with, well, not born with, but had, had grown up developing this sense of personal self-righteousness, that he was better than you, that his beliefs were right and yours were wrong, and, and he was willing to even imprison or kill people who believed differently than him, literally a religious terrorist. And he goes from that to being the apostle of grace, who writes over half the New Testament, who plants churches across the Mediterranean world, who, who tells us more about the gospel than anybody else who's ever lived, who changes the world more than anybody other than Jesus than I can think of. And you know, the whole story ends... The story that began in a garden with with humanity being evicted by their own sin, destroying a a perfect world, the the story ends in a a city of gold with a Savior walking side by side with His people once again, a redeemed earth, a perfect place with all the sin and all of its stain removed. God will bring peace to chaos. That's what He does. And He uses you and me. Our second goal was not just to tell that story, but for you to think about your story, 
What does your story look like? Who was it who brought you to faith in Jesus? Who was it who first told you about him? Who was it who showed you the faith so you knew how to walk? Who was it who invested in your life down through the years and helped you learn new skills or or develop new characteristics or or develop maturity so you could be equipped for this life? Maybe it was a, a teacher you had in elementary school or high school or junior high who was more to you than just that subject matter. Or maybe it was an employer who was more than a boss. Or maybe it was a coworker who became unexpectedly the best friend you ever had. Maybe it was a couple a little bit further along in marriage than you and your spouse, and you looked at them and said, I want what they have. Down through the years, there have been people who've invested in your life and have made a difference in you. And our goal as a church is that we would be a church that produces people who just instinctively do that, who go outside their families, outside their their little narrow interest circles and say, I'm going to invest in this person and this person, and I'm I'm going to pour my life into them because Jesus poured himself out for me. And that's what I'm called to do. And when we get to 10,000 people, we say 10,000 transforming relationships is our goal. That's just a number. If every member of this church takes seriously the call of God to bring peace to chaos through these kinds of relationships, who knows how many lives will be touched. Today, we want to we ask the, story, the question, how do you want your story to end? Now, I, I hate to say this. I hate to dwell on such morbid details, but someday I or another pastor are going to stand behind your casket. Some of you are going to outlive me, so it'll be somebody else, but some of you won't. And so I or another pastor will stand behind your casket and try to sum up your life in 10 or 15 minutes. What do you want that pastor to say? What do you hope that I'll say? See, it's not really about what is said in those moments. The real question is, what is the legacy your life is leaving? What is your life going to be summed up in when it's all said and done? There's really nothing you can do about what's come before. But the way you live from this day to that, whether that's months away, years away, decades away, will make all the difference. The way you finish matters. How do you want your story to end? Keep that question in mind. We're going to come back to it. So last week, Alan did a great job of showing us the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28. And the book of Acts ends in a way that's very unusual because it ends on a cliffhanger. Paul is still in prison at the end of Acts 28. It says that Paul spent two years in a rented house preaching the gospel unhindered. That's the last word of the book of Acts. So it's a very triumphant ending. And at the same time, there's a lot of questions. What happened to Paul at the end of those two years? Was he set free? Did he face trial? Did he spend more time in jail? Here's what we know. When the book of Acts ends, it's about the year 60 AD. In the year 64 AD, so four years later, You can check me on my math if you need to. 64 AD, there's a great fire in the city of Rome. Blocks and blocks of buildings and homes burned to the ground. And immediately, Roman citizens point the finger at Nero, the the Caesar, the governor, the emperor. They say, you've been loudly proclaiming how you want to rebuild sections of Rome. Well, you set this fire on purpose, didn't you? Just to get all these things out of the way. It's your vanity that caused this. Now, Nero was a politician and he did what? politicians do. He said, it's not my fault, it's their fault. And he pointed the finger at Christians. And so in 64 AD, for the very first time in history, Christianity became the subject of official Roman persecution. His excuse was, these people don't worship our gods. Therefore, the wrath of our gods has fallen upon us. Therefore, the meaner we are to them, the better the gods will be to us. And if you know anything about Nero, you know he was more than a politician. He was an exceptionally sadistic human being. He enjoyed cruelty. 
And I won't go into detail about the kinds of things he did to Christians in those days, but you can look it up if you want. It was awful. And church tradition is pretty unanimous in saying it was during that time that both Peter and Paul were arrested. Paul was, or Peter at that time, was the leader of the church in Rome. Paul uh, had, was either still there or had gone and come back. Peter, it is said, was crucified upside down, whereas Paul escaped crucifixion only because he was a Roman citizen. He died by beheading. So sometime in the year 64 AD, Paul dies. Sometime before that, he writes 2 Timothy. Timothy, you probably remember, was the young man who Paul and Barnabas met long before on their first missionary journey in the little town of Lystra, son of a Greek father and a, and a Jewish mother, a believer in Jesus. Paul baptized him, had him circumcised. Paul actually took Timothy along with him after a while, called him my beloved son. This man who had no earthly children considered this the closest thing he had to offspring. That's how special Timothy was to Paul. And so Paul as he is in prison, writes 2 Timothy, what you and I are about to read are Paul's last recorded words. And they show us a lot about how you want your story to end. Chapter four, verse six. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me for ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, also the books, and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me, and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Now, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to see there's a difference in Paul's tone of voice in the book of Second Timothy. You compare this to Philippians or Colossians or Philemon, books that he wrote in his earlier imprisonment. In those books, he was absolutely sure he was going to be released. He was already making plans for the future. In these words, there's no plans for the future in this world. He's talking about the next world. Paul is all alone. He knows he's going to die. The only person who's with him is Timothy. He talks about Demas, one of his, one of his fellow workers who has fallen in love with this world and deserted him. In other words, it's better, he considered it better to keep himself safe and to chase his own dreams than to stick by me in prison. He talks about this guy, Alexander, who has harmed the cause of Christ and caused Paul 
his own personal sense of pain. He asked Timothy, bring me the cloak I left behind in Troas. Troas is a thousand miles away. Why would Paul ask Timothy to go out of his way to get this cloak when he comes to visit him instead of just asking the entire church in Rome to come and give him blankets or, or coats or whatever he needs? Well, because the church is in hiding right now. The persecution has gotten that severe. They're walking around the street every day seeing crucified Christians lining the streets. They're hiding. And that's why Paul says, when no one stood before me, stood beside me at my first hearing, I don't hold it against them. God won't hold it against them. He understands. And it's sad, isn't it, to think of this man who has given so much to the cause of Christ, who's helped so many individual people and still helps you and I today. It's sad to think that his end is like this. Alone in his cell, cold, lonely. I, I, that detail where he says, please do your best to come before winter just breaks your heart because he knows he's an old man by now, old before his time. He's got a lot of wounds. He knows that if the winter comes and he doesn't have that cloak, he is going to suffer. It shouldn't be this way. And some of you have seen your loved ones pass away in ways like this where you think to yourself, God, why are you allowing them to suffer. I thought you would just take them quietly in their sleep. This is an understanding. We have to see this happens sometimes. Paul is dying in a way that we would not wish on anyone. And yet, he's not bitter. And yet, he's not angry. And yet, he's not afraid. He asked Timothy, bring me the books I left behind, especially the parchments. You see, in those days, most literature was written on papyrus, which is a plant-based material. It doesn't last very long. But things that were valuable were written on parchment, which is animal skin, which lasts. Most scholars think that what Paul was saying was, bring me my scrolls of the Old Testament. Somewhere down the line, Paul had managed to acquire some scrolls of the Old Testament. He'd left them behind in Troas. He wants to study them with his own eyes one last time. Notice that he asked for Mark. This is beautiful. Mark, you might recall, John Mark was the young relative of Barnabas who went with them on their first missionary journey. And in Cyprus, their first missionary stop, he bailed on them and came back home. And Paul didn't trust him after that. In fact, when they went on their second journey, they had a split because Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. And Paul said, I'm not going if Mark's going. But now all these years later, Paul says, bring Mark to me because he is useful to me. And that just displays this perfect reconciliation which should happen every time you and I disagree. Every time you and I get crossways with one another, we should look toward reconciliation. Paul also praises God that through his imprisonment, Gentiles are hearing the gospel. People who otherwise wouldn't know anything about Jesus are hearing about him. And most of all, notice there's no self-pity. When Paul says, my life is being poured out as a drink offering. He's using terms that you and I don't usually use and may not be familiar with, but Paul grew up Jewish and he knew in that worship system, you didn't worship God with hymns or tithes or church attendance. You worshiped him with sacrifice. You brought a burnt offering before the Lord. You brought, you brought a bull, a ram, a goat, the best of your herd or your flock. You burned it on the altar before the Lord, before the priest. And when you brought your burnt offering before the Lord, the book of Leviticus specified, you were also to bring a drink offering. A drink offering was a quarter of a hen of wine. You know how much, you know what a quarter of a hen is? It's a fourth of a chicken. 
Come on. Now, actually, it's, it's about a half gallon, a half gallon of liquid. And I don't know anything about wine, but if somebody pours out a half gallon of Dr. Pepper, I'm going to be pretty upset. That's a lot of waste, right? But it wasn't wasteful. See, that's worship. Worship doesn't have to make economic sense. In fact, it usually doesn't. You don't, you don't measure worship in terms of its usefulness. You're, you're, you're giving it over to God because he's worth it. And that's what Paul says about his life. Paul says, you may look at me and say, but you still have many years to live, many churches to plant, many letters to write. Why would God take you now? And his response is, it's not a waste. If God is ready for me to stand before him face to face, I am grateful for the opportunity to pour out my life as an offering of worship before him anytime he's ready for me. And then he switches to athletic metaphors. And you may think I'm ridiculous when I say this, but I will argue till the day I die, Paul was a sports fan. He loved to use athletic metaphors, and he does so here in a series. He says, I have fought the good fight. He's not talking about the skill with which he fought, but the fact that he fought the right battle. Everybody in this room, everybody alive today is fighting some kind of battle, but most people aren't fighting the right one. Paul said, I have fought the good fight, the fight that's worth fighting. I have finished the race, he says. Every race has a particular course. Now, if you're talking about track and field, that's easy. You just go around the loop. But like with my son's cross-country meets, when they run, they run in a field or in a, uh, on a golf course or, or someplace uh, where there's not a clear path to run on. And so uh, at those cross-country meets, sometimes parents will volunteer to be race monitors. You'll stand at a particular location, and when the runners come, you point that way. So they go in the right direction because it would be a real shame to run 3.15 miles and find out you ran the wrong race. In fact, if you, you may be the fastest, strongest runner on that course, but if you run the wrong race, you finish last. Paul used this metaphor some years earlier in Acts 20, 24, when he said, my only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. So years earlier, Paul said, I don't, the only thing I care about is, you know, God, I, I could have all kinds of other goals, all kinds of races I want to run. God has placed a course before me, a race to run, and that is to testify of his grace. My goal is to finish that race did not get drawn aside to race my own run my own course and now here he is at the end of his days knowing I'll never see freedom again they're sharpening the axe to take my head any day now i've finished that race isn't that beautiful i ran the right course and i finished it then when he says i have kept the faith he's talking about complete loyalty to god he's saying all along i put the team ahead of myself it wasn't about me. It was about God's kingdom. And then when he says, the crown of righteousness, I know that in the future, the crown of righteousness will be placed upon my head. There were two Greek words for crown. One was a word that referred to the crown of gold and jewels that you place on the head of a king or some other royal person. That's not the one Paul's talking about here. The other one was a, a laurel wreath, a wreath of leaves that you would place on the head of an Olympic champion. And that's the one Paul's talking about. He's saying, I know I'm going to win. I'm going to be the champion. I'm going to receive the prize. Now, Peter uses this same term in 1 Peter. He says, it is the crown that never fades away. And isn't that interesting? Because you think about our world today, and there's never been a society quite like American culture in this day where we exalt people for their athletic skill. 
You can make a lot of money if you can throw a ball a certain distance or catch a ball or run a certain speed or jump high or, or hit a, a tiny little ball with a stick. And yet, the glory of that fades. I mean, only a serious sports nerd knows who was the batting champion five years ago or the World Series MVP 10 years ago or the Masters champion 15 years ago or the Heisman Trophy winner 25 years ago. You can, you can be on top of the world of sports today, making millions of dollars with endorsement deals and five years from now be in a homeless shelter or a rehab center or living off the streets or better yet, be one of those overweight people that tells stories that no one wants to listen to and everyone says, he was an athlete? That's our world. That's athletic glory. The glory of serving God never fades away. That's what Paul's saying. That crown is going to be placed on my head. You think about it. You think about this crown of righteousness. I, I, went, I was pastor of a church that where my associate pastor was the education minister. And every year in the fall, we would have a Sunday school's appreciation Sunday where he would have the people in the congregation who had perfect Sunday school attendance would stand and be recognized by name. And he'd give each one of them a little badge that they could pin on their shirt or on their dress. And if it was more than one year, they would put a pin on the bottom of their badge. And so you could add to that, that series of pins. There were two ladies in the church. I'm gonna call them Margaret and Helen, not their real names. And they had a streak going. Margaret had 18 straight years of perfect Sunday school attendance and Helen had 16. And they wore these badges every, every year on that Sunday that would go down practically to their waist. And I used to laugh to myself. These were both incredibly sweet ladies who I loved, but I used to laugh about Helen thinking, you know, she's two years ahead of me. You know, maybe, Lord, this year, can she just get the flu? I mean, I don't want her to die. I don't want anything bad. Just, just slightly sick, just so I can take the lead. And, and, you know, they were in their 80s at the time. That's been a long time ago. And so those ladies are probably both in heaven now, but it makes me wonder what happened to those badges. You know, when, when they stood before the Lord. He didn't say, okay, I want to see your badges. You know what I'm going to say, right? He said, we don't need no stinking badges here, right? We, that's not what it's about. That's not what the Lord is interested in. Now, don't get me wrong. I have great appreciation for people who prioritize small group Bible study. That's important. Memorizing Scripture, tithing faithfully, being here every Sunday you can be. All those things are wonderful. I hope you do them. But none of those things are the crown of righteousness because none of those things last forever. You know what lasts forever? People. Every person you know is going to spend eternity somewhere. People are the crown of righteousness. You're talking about Paul's crown of righteousness. He's talking about people like Luke and Mark, these two young men that he poured his life into who ended up writing two out of the four Gospels. That's quite a legacy. It's Timothy and Titus and all these other young church planters that he invested in. It's Priscilla and Aquila, this, this couple who were tent makers like Paul, became lifelong friends, who were men and who were a man and woman who, who were willing to move wherever the church needed them, whether it was Corinth or Ephesus or Rome. It was women like Phoebe, who was actually the person Paul entrusted with taking the letter, the book of Romans, to the church at Rome. And Lydia, the first convert in the, in the continent of Europe who hosted the Philippian church. And Chloe, the member of the, of the church in Corinth who made sure Paul understood 
what they've written you in a letter isn't the whole story. Here's what's actually going on in our church. And that's what led to the writing of First and Second Corinthians. It's Onesimus, the former slave, and Linus, the man in Rome who becomes the leader of the Roman church after Peter is executed, and countless other people whose names we don't even know. See, everything in this world fades. You can build a financial empire, and one of your idiot kids will spend it all. You can do push-ups every morning and moisturize every night. You're still going to get old and die. Happy Thanksgiving. (laughs) The only thing that lasts forever is the souls of every person you know. The people you invest in are your crown. So how do you want your story to end? I ask you that question again. When I'm standing behind your casket someday, what do you hope I'll say? Do you want me to say... Well, he sure took his golf game seriously. Boy, she sure was concerned about how her house looked. She made sure her kids were well-dressed. He made sure his son could throw a curveball. Is that really what's important? What do you want me to say? See, what I'm really hoping, what I'm really praying is that everybody here will say, Lord, show me who you want me to invest in. I already have my, my wife, my kids, my loved ones, and yes, they take up a lot of my time, and yes, I'm working hard, but you have brought so many people into contact with me. Who do you want me to invest in? Who is it that you have brought into my life? Our goal as a staff, when we went to staff retreat last month, was that in 2021, every member of our church would be involved in at least one transforming relationship, one relationship where you make a difference in the life of somebody you probably wouldn't invest in if not for Jesus. And some of you are already involved in relationships like that. You've told me the stories and I've seen them. And soon we're going to give you an opportunity to tell us those stories so we can keep track of them on our way to 10,000. And some of you are just beginning a relationship like that, like the 50 of you who've, uh, who've adopted teachers over at Sam Houston Elementary. We've already gotten word from that school that those teachers are so thankful for us showing interest in them and and partnering with them in their mission. And then there are a whole bunch of you who are wondering, what should I do next? My suggestion is just pray, Lord, show me. Arrange divine appointments for me. Place a burden in my heart for this person or that person. And don't just pray, take actual stock of who are the people I know, who are the people in my circle of influence. And it may be coworkers and it may be friends and it may be neighbors, but it's also the lady who cuts your hair. It's also the nurse at your doctor's office. It's also your kid's teachers and his friend's parents. It's, it's the waitress at the place you eat once a week. It's the guy who, who makes your latte for you at the coffee shop. It's, it's everybody you know. How many of those people don't know Jesus? How many of those people need someone to invest in their lives? God knows. You may not at this point, but he can show you. Take stock and ask him to show you the way. And someday, and someday when, when I stand behind your casket, I won't need to think of what to say because there will be all these people coming out of the woodwork saying, I want to say something today. Can you let me say something about this person? Because it's because of him that, 
I, I got through the worst part of my life when I was at the end of my rope. It's, it, it, she's the one who showed me what it meant to love my husband and raise my kids. I, I base everything on what I learned from her. He's the one who encouraged me when I was on the verge of suicide. She's the one who was courageous enough to get in my face when I wouldn't get serious about my drinking. Um, he's the one who told me about Jesus in a way that actually made me want to be saved. I'd, I'd heard about Jesus my whole life, raised in church, but he was the first person that I saw such authenticity and such absolute love for me that I just had to have what he had. That's the legacy you want to leave. That's the crown you want to wear. And let's talk about that crown for a moment, okay? Because Paul here sounds really confident, doesn't he, when he says, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. I mean, if an athlete in the middle of a game says, I know we're going to win, we consider that cockiness and we, we think it's shameful. Is Paul guilty of overconfidence? Well, yeah, he's confident, but he's not confident in himself. He's not saying, I get the crown because I planted these churches, because I wrote these letters, because I witnessed to these people. Paul was very upfront, very honest about his own failings. He's the one who called himself the chief of sinners, the least of the apostles. Paul would tell you, there's nothing I can ever do that will make up for the sins that I've committed. Now, Paul is not confident in himself. He's confident in his Savior. Jesus promised, and he won't let me down. Because he wrote Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he wrote, it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one should boast. Paul is including himself in that. I've got no room to boast, he says. It's all a gift. Philippians 3.9, he wrote, I want to be found in him, that is Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, the first half of my life was all about building a righteousness of my own. And then I met Jesus on the road to Damascus and realized it's all a bucket of garbage. Everything that I thought was righteousness that was pleasing to God, just throw it out because it's worth nothing. All that matters is the righteousness that comes from him. See, Paul understood. Paul understood that nobody's ever won the race except Jesus. Nobody's ever won the fight except Jesus. Jesus was the one who faced down the forces of evil and wiped them out completely. And we get the victory. See, he crossed the finish line first. But instead of a crown, he got a cross. We lived a sinful life, and instead of a cross, we get a crown. He carries the cross that we deserved. We get the crown that he earned. That's the way the gospel works. And if you throw anything else into that equation, it's not the gospel anymore. It's as simple as that. He gets the cross, we get the crown. And so we cherish that old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. 